Welcome to Privacy by Design, the cybersecurity and regulatory podcast. Brought to you by Partners in Regulatory Compliance. Now, here's your host, Dan Howry. Welcome to another episode of Privacy by Design, the Cybersecurity and Regulatory Compliance podcast from Partners in Regulatory Compliance here in the Big Apple, New York City. I'm your host, Dan Howry, and I'm joined today by my partner, Eric Burke, who is a founding member of the firm. Hello, Eric. How are you? Good afternoon. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you. Also returning with us once again today for our third episode is our cybersecurity practice lead and consultant, Jeff Miller. Howdy, Jeff. Hey, Dan. Hey, Eric. Okay. So we're going to jump right in, guys. Today we're talking about something that really interests me and I know is a hot topic these days. We all need standards. We all need a place to begin. Um, and we need a framework. So today we're talking about the NIST cybersecurity framework. Uh, Jeff, let's jump right in. What is NIST cybersecurity framework? Sure, actually, maybe I'll back it up and say, what is NIST? Um, so the National Institute of Standards and Technology is part of the US Department of Commerce, and it's been around actually since 1901. So over a century um, of, of tenure, and NIST's mission is to promote U.S. innovation and industrial competitiveness. And uh, cybersecurity is a way that we do that in 2018 and beyond. It used to be uh, that they did a lot with advanced measurement uh, and, and standards in that way. But now that the world is moving cyber, uh, an increasing part of what NIST does is help the world, at least uh, in America, um, with doing cybersecurity and doing it right. Um, the, the NIST cybersecurity framework is uh, a, a pretty universally uh, sort of de facto standard for doing cybersecurity in the United States. If you actually read through it, it's only 59 pages. It's available if you just Google NIST cybersecurity framework. It's not as complicated as people think. And um, it, it's really universally applicable in nature, whether you're a healthcare facility, uh, a retail organization, non-for-profit, governmental agency, uh, it is a considered sort of the de facto standard for how to do cybersecurity. And so it has a bunch of different components in it, but it is fairly lean and that is, again, only 59 pages. And the majority of that is just explaining how to use it. Gotcha. So so what I'm hearing is, you know, you're giving a, you're giving a framework here that not only is a great jumping off point, but it's very uh, well known, well published and accepted. So no one's ever going to get fired for saying, hey, I use the NIST security framework, right? That's exactly right. If it, you know, you can't go wrong. In fact, uh, a lot of the other regulations out there are really just pointers to NIST, where NIST is really the, the thing that you have to do. Uh, for example, the DFARS, um, regulation applies to military contractors and subcontractors. In other words, anybody who's performing any um, service or providing any goods to the Department of Defense, they've got to follow NIST standards. And so the DFARS regulation is really just a pointer to NIST itself. And as Dan, you and I were talking about before the podcast, uh, the HIPAA security rule, for example, says you, you guys have to do a risk assessment. If you're a hospital, if you're touching healthcare data, do a risk assessment. 
What they don't say is how. So the how is you know, follow NIST standards. So NIST is has become that that thing that all other regulation they're looking at, and all other um, anybody who needs to do security really should be looking at NIST as the the first step. And it came about because uh, more and more in this day of of cyber intrusions, uh, back when President Obama was our president, they saw this as, look, we have to protect ourselves, our critical infrastructure, and uh, improve the cybersecurity. If you think about the Internet of Things, right, we've all heard that buzzword, what does that mean? That means, you know, our nuclear plants, they're, they're connected to a network. Uh, water facilities, they're connected to a network. Think about traffic control devices that are connected to a network. And, you know, if I'm a foreign uh, entity or an enemy trying to get at our country, they're looking at getting into the, the critical infrastructure. So really this came about to protect the critical infrastructure and then matured into a framework that's really applicable across the board, regardless of vertical. Gotcha. In terms of the goals of NIST, obviously, you know, the, 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 the founders or the, the people that, uh, you know, were the genesis of the cybersecurity framework that is NIST, uh, what, what were the goals of, of the cybersecurity framework? Yeah, so really three, three simple goals. Number one, to manage cyber risk. And so everything has to do with getting a baseline of your risk first. And once you know what your risk is, managing it and ultimately trying to shrink as much as possible. So that's number one, uh, find and reduce risk. Number two is to provide a common language. So uh, without a, a framework that everybody knows and follows, it's like English. You know, if you're speaking Spanish and I'm speaking English, we're going to be missing some things, right? We're going to be crossing wires. So the, the cybersecurity framework lays out a, a set of common language that we can all use and, and we know what it means and stay on the same page when we're having these discussions around cybersecurity. And then lastly, uh, it can be used to create, guide, assess, or improve a cybersecurity program. So a company that may be starting from scratch, first foray into cybersecurity. If you, if I was to be hired as a CISO in a new company, and on day one they say, you know, go and, and do your job, the first thing I'm going to do is, is say, we're going to we're going to do an assessment on this entire organization based on the NIST framework and where the gaps are. That's where I'm going to start budgeting in future fiscal years for. Uh, for technology uh, and for training for people and written policy, that's that's what I need to budget off of. So again, three things, managing cyber risk, providing that common language to discuss cyber risks, and then helping companies create comprehensive cybersecurity programs. The point you just brought up, you know, a lot of people feel like they have to go kind of from zero to 100 when they attack uh, a compliance issue like this. Can you talk a little bit to how uh, that's either true or not true in trying to tackle some of these issues that folks are coming up against. Yeah, that's a good point, Eric. And it's you don't you don't go from zero to hundred, right? You have to get to to two miles an hour, three miles an hour, and so on, right? And so to to do that, you have to focus on. And I like this as an overlay to NIST, which is uh, it, you guys have probably heard of the CIS top twenty critical controls. So really, and those are really a good way of prioritizing. Once you know what your gaps are, certainly you, you probably don't have the time, the budget, or the manpower to do everything all at once that month, let's say, after doing an assessment. So what, what I tell people to do is find out what your gaps are, and then to prioritize them, 
know that it's going to take time, know that it's going to take budget, get the buy-in ahead of time, but in terms of prioritizing the things that need to get done, follow the, the CIS top 20 critical controls. So if you look at that, the top 20 critical controls, the first two controls are know what you have, know what hardware is out there, you know, what the workstations, servers, routers, switches, and so on, and then know what, what is running on it, so what software is, is on there. So knowing what you have, then you can know what, what to protect. If you don't know what you have and it's, that's not cataloged and, and you really don't know what assets are in the organization to protect, there's no way you can protect it, right? You've got to know what you have first. And then another point to, to your question, Eric, is um, just recently in August of 2018, the federal government uh, gave NIST a new mandate, which is, take the NIST cybersecurity framework and custom fit it for small and medium businesses. Knowing that people have that same, you know, scary concern about having to go from zero to 100 and this, you know, 59 pages isn't a lot of pages, but if you've never done security, it's 59 more pages than you're used to. Uh, so the NIST cybersecurity framework is gonna be retooled for SMB, and I expect that probably in 2019 or 2020 uh, to come out, and that, won't necessarily replace this, but it will give a lot of more uh, smaller companies an easier uh, way of getting started with cybersecurity. That's awesome. <clears throat> um, Jeff, so we did have a question uh, come in um, when, when we found out we were doing this. So the question is, while we're talking about framework, right, how is the NIST cybersecurity framework from NIST SP800-53? Right, so 853 uh, came out after the Federal Information Security Management Act, or otherwise known as FISMA, was issued in 2002. So it is the sort of grandfather. The SP 100-53 is, is the older of the two frameworks, again, they're coming out in 2002. And at SP 153, if you look at it in its current revision, is, is about 500 pages long. And a lot of the extra, you know, depth and then sort of the meat to the 800-53 is that it catalogs controls, whereas this cybersecurity framework doesn't catalog controls. So what do I mean by controls? So for example, um, you know, you need to do encryption. Okay, that's an easy thing to say, but how do I do encryption? 800-53 will talk about the various different ways of doing encryption and the controls that you can put in place, whereas the cybersecurity framework just says, do encryption and you either have somebody smart telling you what that means and how to do that or you look at the cybersecurity framework and instead of including all those controls it merely references controls to other uh, more comprehensive frameworks such as 800-53 ISO CIS that I mentioned earlier and COVID so uh, the CSF or the cybersecurity framework is inherently meant to be more generic on purpose and uh, not contain all the controls, uh, the, the catalog of controls that the other, you know, ISO and 800-53 include. And uh, again, both the cybersecurity framework and 800-53 do have applicability out of the, uh, beyond the original uh, intended purpose for federal information systems. So they really are both applicable to any vertical. Um, I would say for small and medium business, start with the cybersecurity framework. Anybody who's doing anything within the federal government or contracting for the federal government, you're going to want to go ahead and do 800-53, even though it is the lengthier of the two frameworks. 
So far, what I'm getting is, you know, if, if you're just starting out, if, if you're, you know, brand new in a position and you're in charge of IT security, if you're a new CISO arriving on the job, um, you're probably going to be looking at NISC, NIST, and that's where you're going to start to assess where your gaps are. Right. The only other time that a company may go, let's say, to the ISO 2701 stack, let's call it, is if they have international business. Uh, so the, the thing about the NIST cybersecurity framework, there's no seal of compliance. You know, nobody's going to, no auditor can come in and give you a rubber stamp uh, to say, 100%, you're doing everything you need to do under the cybersecurity framework, which is fine. It was never intended to, to have a rubber stamp associated with it. But uh, the ISO 2701 cybersecurity framework is sort of more globally recognized. If you have, let's say, operations, you're headquartered in the United States, but then you have you know, a manufacturing facility in China, and you've got some administrative offices in Spain and so on, if you're more of a global company, they tend to go more towards the ISO stack. But by and large, the company that companies that we work with and, and the organizations that we deal with are in the United States. So the cybersecurity framework is, is you know, you don't have to go to ISO. With uh, a lot of folks out there having multiple compliance requirements, is there a good one to start with? Is there something that covers uh, a, a broader base than maybe another one that would help them jumpstart maybe getting several compliance uh, regulations or, or a, uh, catching up on sev several compliances at the same time? Yeah, it, it, again, the cybersecurity framework really is the most high level, broad in scope. So think about, uh, think about an example of what Eric is talking about. You've got a, you've got a hospital. You walk into the hospital, uh, you, you give them all your, your social, your name, your address, they're drawing your blood, they're, there's medical records, that all gets stored into an EMR system, so they've got that data to protect under the HIPAA security rule, and then you got to pay them, right? These doctors aren't working for free, so you, you at some point have to swipe a credit card uh, into a point of sale system, or maybe there's an online portal where you can pay uh, for your patient visit, so now you're dealing with both HIPAA and PCI, right? And, and your organization has two different sets of standards that you have to follow. The fact is that a majority of both overlap. And so because of that very high percentage of overlap with all these frameworks, uh, if a company like that hasn't done anything before in, in terms of security, we tell them to follow NIST by default and then the small percentage of things that don't fall under that umbrella of NIST that may be unique to the HIPAA security rule or maybe unique to PCI, you can handle those. But if you're doing the cybersecurity framework, you're gonna be covering more than 80% of both of those different uh, needs. The NIST cybersecurity framework has five pillars. What are those pillars and what's covered under those pillars? So that's an easy question to ask, a little bit more of a, a lengthy, um, I'll try to keep it short here, but. You ask big questions, Dan, I and mean, that's why I like it. <laughs> uh, so the five pillars of NIST are uh, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And the goal, again, going back to earlier in the discussion, is to provide a high-level strategic view of how to manage cybersecurity risk. And it just so happened that when all the government entities and private entities and thousands of people involved in creating the cybersecurity framework came together, 
they all sort of agreed on a consensus of these five pillars. So really, uh, so again, going, going back to it, it's identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. So when you think about identify, what are you identifying? You're identifying what assets you have. Again, that's the CIS top 20 critical controls tell you know what you have before you can protect it. It also helps uh, the uh, big component. In fact, I think that the most important thing to start off with is the business context, right? It's, it's one thing to think about your hardware and your software and the technology and really get off track and think of cybersecurity as just an IT problem, but outside of the business context, you're, you're not going to do well. If you don't know uh, the importance of risk mitigation or the risk appetite, they call it, uh, of, of the business, you're not going to be doing cybersecurity in a way that's cost effective or in a way that's aligning with business goals. So getting that business context, defining roles and responsibilities. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times I hear people say cybersecurity takes a village. And so it's not just that you have the CISO or the CEO saying, you know, do these things, and then everybody has to figure out what it is. There has to be uh, buy-in from the C-suite, from the president, the owner, that level. There has to be buy-in from your, your security guys, whether they're internal or outsourced. Then you have the guys implementing it, and they have to, to understand their role and responsibility in terms of implementing new technologies or procedures within the organization. And then another thing to identify is the vulnerabilities, threats, and risks. So, you know, think about a company in New York City, for example, right? They're, they're not dealing with tornadoes, right? New York City, that's not a thing that happens. But if you go to the Midwest, they're dealing with tornadoes. So each business has to identify the unique risks that would face their, their business. And it, it does require a separate risk assessment to do that. So uh, SP 800-30 is NIST's sort of playbook for how to do a risk assessment and identify what the threats are to your unique organization, okay? So identifying your assets, the business content, context, roles and responsibilities, and then getting a firm understanding of what risks face your business. That's the first leg you, you need to stand on before you can protect anything, okay? Any questions on, on the identify pillar, guys? Anything you want to add on that? I, I think it's interesting that, that you bring up um, emergency kind of operational topics when you talk about that. We, you know, we hear the word cybersecurity, and we tend to think security and cyber, um, nothing else. But it sounds like there's a lot of other things that really tangentially touch on that um, that are that are not really technology related. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. Right. When you think about what is cybersecurity, a lot of folks will talk about what they call the CIA triad. And that just simply means the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. And so you have to have contingencies in place. So if I mentioned Hurricane Sandy earlier, right? If, if you're located in New York City and you're getting hammered, you got water in your data center, well, your employees, first of all, you got to make sure they're safe, right? Cybersecurity is useless if your employees aren't safe. So you've got to find a, an alternative way of them uh, getting work done, whether that means that you have an alternate location, maybe you have uh, information that you can spin up in the cloud, some standby systems that are cloud-based, and sort of point people to the cloud and they can work from home. But yeah, it's not just the data itself, but the infrastructure, the availability of that data relies on things like redundancy and, and things like having disaster plans mapped out to keep your people and your data safe. 
Yeah, so Eric, I know, uh, I recall you were recently working with a client where, you know, you were focusing in on that availability, right? You have a client that is a nonprofit that uh, uh, sees patients and, and, and holds private health information. Um, and one of the things that Eric uh, was, I recall you mentioning was availability of data, right? So like if the disaster happens, how soon can we get access to that information again so that we can do our jobs or make that available? Isn't that right, Eric? Yeah, I think, you know, what's important to remember there, too, is is how that can vary from, from customer to customer, environment to environment, in that, um, you know, I think uh, hit the state something along the lines of you need to be able to return those systems to availability in such a way that it doesn't impact your ability to provide care in a way that you otherwise would. So the, the needs of somebody uh, like this not-for-profit, which happened to be a recovery center, um, may not be as impactful. You know, you may not have the, the life or death scenarios that you might have in a hospital system or an emergency room if those systems are, are unavailable. Um, so you have to kind of tailor the way you uh, proceduralize your response based on those particular needs. So there's a lot of variability there. I thought that was pretty interesting to see um, kind of one end of the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so we're fortunate to have NIST, right? Because it gives us a roadmap, it gives us guidelines, um, and it gives us something that is generally accepted, right? I go back to, you know, if push comes to shove and, and you're able to show that, you know, your organization made a very diligent and, and effective uh, effort at, at following and implementing, you know, the NIST framework, uh, you're gonna be a lot on a lot better footing than if you kind of just came up with your own ad hoc plan and kind of winged it across the room. Uh, now that given, uh, somebody somebody says, okay, we're obviously uh, NIST is well accepted. We're going to implement uh, those standards. We're going to follow NIST. What kind of mistakes, Jeff, if any, can they make in trying to implement NIST cybersecurity standards? I mean, I imagine it's not foolproof. No, it's not. So we, um, I'll backtrack a little bit. We, we went over the identify, uh, you know, pillar. The other pillars are protect, detect, respond, and recover. So really the identify is find out what assets you have to protect and then what risks face them. And then the other four pillars are all about protecting them. And if there is some kind of a threat that's going on, being able to detect it, respond to it, and get back up and running. So, so those are the other pillars. I think the mistake that people, the big mistake that people make is management gets told that they have to do cybersecurity because of some audit or some third party company that they're working with simply won't continue to work with them if they're not showing their due diligence. And then they, they unfortunately tend to involve unqualified individuals. They might pass off, hey, here's a spreadsheet and, and, and it's based on this and these are all the things that this third party company needs us to do. To maintain this business relationship and they'll hand it off to somebody in administration who simply has no idea of anything about cybersecurity and is just kind of making things up and it's not for you know them doing anything malicious they just don't really know how to answer things and they're not qualified um, another thing i see is people mistaking the NIST cybersecurity framework for a risk assessment there are two different things 
So in fact, the NIST cybersecurity framework in the identify that first pillar says do a risk assessment. And they're not the same thing. Really, if you look at uh, what your company is doing today versus the NIST cybersecurity framework, that's more of a gap analysis. Um, and, and it's important to do, but also doing a risk assessment is important. You really need to do both things. Uh, they have different uh, end goals. Uh, so that's a mistake I see. I, I see people say, I'm in the cloud. You know, I, I had an IT company come in and they moved us to 365 and our, our file storage is in the cloud. So I'm secure because I'm in the cloud. And that's simply not true. The fact is there's a lot of things that need to get turned on that are maybe features that are available, but if they're not configured and turned on, they're not protecting you. For example, we all know about phishing, right? It's the number one way that hackers are, in the last 10 years of the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, that's the way people are getting in. That's the, the tip of the spear. So great, you're in Office 365, but if you don't have multi-factor authentication enabled, you're at very high risk of account takeover. So just Saying that you're in the cloud and turning a blind eye to actually configure thing, configuring things to align with the NIST, uh, the, the five tenets of NIST, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. And then lastly, I would say just uh, a lack of uh, buy-in uh, for management and, and identified roles, you know, throwing it at one person and, and making it their sole job. You know, if you have a CISO or a fractional CISO, maybe you're outsourcing that role, that person can can be the puppeteer and tie everything together, but giving it to somebody who is it's like a second hat that they have to wear, and and there's many other things that they have to do. That's a terrible idea, and they're they're going to frankly be fragmented, and and not able to do the best job for your company. And so, what's at risk? Not doing a good job with the with implementing NIST standards means your reputation, your revenue, your employee satisfaction. Uh, all these things are at risk and again like you said availability as well yeah we definitely see uh you, you know it's definitely problems where someone hands someone something and you know kind of uh just you know abdicates responsibility you know um i've seen stories where the managing partner at a law firm you know maybe tells uh one of his secretaries that you know you're responsible for maybe removing the backup tapes you know, our weekly backup from the office, and that's your job. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, that person who is not an IT professional, doesn't know anything about storing data on removable media, um, he or she just knows that uh, it's my job to take these and take them home with me, um, only to find out later on that the uh, these, you know, DLT tapes are being stored uh, in the trunk of a car, which probably gets to be what about 150 degrees in the summer, uh, all summer long, and and um, are in bad shape when you need them. So I totally get the point where you know you can't just take something like this and hand it to someone and say do this. I think what I'm hearing is let let the professionals do this for you. Absolutely, that's I couldn't have made the point better, Dan. Yeah. How do you account for uh, businesses that have relationships with other companies that ultimately they hold compliance responsibility for? How, how does that play out? So a big part of NIST is managing third parties. You have to do due diligence with anybody who's touching your data, whether they're storing it or processing it. 
and it's, it goes beyond IT. It could be a janitorial staff who has access into a building. Uh, that you got to think about them as a third party. You have to think about these cloud vendors as third parties. Outsourced IT companies, these are third parties. I, I talked to one uh, company, and, and for privacy purposes, I can't say who it was, but a company that does furniture on, for a majority of the East Coast. Uh, the gentleman in charge of their security did an audit of, well, who am I dealing with? Who are my third parties? And come to find out, it was over 220 third parties that had at least tangential access to data or physical access to systems. So if you don't have a methodology for handling third parties and holding them accountable, then you could do all you want to do to protect yourself and you're, you're going to be barely more secure than you were um, after all that time and effort protecting yourself. So I think the banking industry does a really good job talking about how to handle third parties. I, I would say of all the industries that we work with, the financial services industry tends to be more mature. So for anybody wondering, well, how do I hold third, third parties accountable, uh, really look at what uh, the banking industry is doing, and, and we can provide uh, you know, links to that on the website, but they've got it really figured out. It's really about having a, a good um, risk management program for your third parties, not just you know, a five-page page written document. It's, it's really gotta be intentional, and you have to have methods of checking them. There has to be some kind of regular reporting, some kind of uh, KPIs or way of measuring that they're doing what they're supposed to do. Even, even so much as doing a site visit or doing background checks of third parties. All right, guys, so that's about all the time we have for today. Um, I want to thank you, Jeff, and you, Eric, for taking the time and joining us. Um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Have Thanks, guys. Take care. So as always, uh, the best way to help us out here is to leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, this podcast is also available on Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and maybe one or two more. Um, but if you do leave a review on iTunes for us, it will help us uh, get the word out about the podcast and kind of bring it to the top of the search results. So if you're getting any value uh, from the information and content we're providing, I welcome you to uh, leave us a review, and not only that, uh, share it with a colleague maybe, and uh, maybe help them out as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Privacy by Design. For more information, please visit us at pyregcompliance.com. That's P-I-R-E-G compliance.com. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes.